Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. The healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot. Feeling all at sea and looking for direction, advice, and deeper understanding? From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with someone who's visiting us all the way from Cape Town. Um, Ntabalang Ramwedi is the founder of the Rare Disease Lesotho Association and lives with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and advocates for other patients living with rare disease. So Ntabalang, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. And as I mentioned to you before we started the interview, you're also the first person who I'm interviewing who is in Africa, which is a really exciting uh, shift for us as well, because we've been wanting to get more of an international perspective on patient advocacy and and healthcare. So I, I'm very honored that you're joining us. And it's very early there. So you've very kindly uh, gotten up early for this. <laughs> so I really appreciate it. And I mean, you know, we mentioned that you live with EDS, Ehlers-Danlos, and I was wondering if you could talk to us about, we'll start with your story, how and when you first realized that you had a health condition and how you have managed your symptoms since that diagnosis. Oh, thank you. Uh, That's a very tricky question because I believe I was around 12 when my body started feeling uncomfortable. Mm. I thought I was any better before, but as a child, I don't think I noticed. I just felt probably some people are different and, you know, we experience life differently. And some, most people used to say I'm slow. Well, clumsy, yes. I was considered clumsy as a child. So I was like, they'll be like, don't give her too, like a heavy tray of things. She might just trip over. But we just took it as, okay, no, I'm a clumsy child and I'll pick up and become, I don't know. You'll get graceful eventually. Yeah, I guess stable at one point in my life. But right now, I'm just a clumsy child. But at 12, I think that's when the body would start changing from child to adolescent. And my body started giving me problems. It's like, yes, I should change, but the structure of your body doesn't give me permission to change in the way I should change. That's when I started getting aches and pains. And one thing, because Lesotho, which is the country I was born in, um, I'm just visiting Cape Town uh, for now. Yes. <laughs> uh, Lesotho is rather cold in winter. It's one of the only countries in Africa, out of three, I think, that has that experiences snow in winter. Wow, okay. Yes, so 
I used to tell my grandmother and my mom that I can feel the cold within my bones. And people yeah. would say, but you're exaggerating. How can you feel cold surpass your skin into your bones? I'm like, I don't know how to explain it, but I swear to God, I can feel it in my bones. I think there are a lot of people listening who can relate to that, that feeling. <laughs> yes. So I'm like, I could even tell. What's funny, I could still, even at that age, tell when the weather's going to change because my body will start changing. And well, we didn't take it seriously until sometime in high school. I, I, I think something happened and a, a guy held my neck a bit too hard and my jaws completely dislocated. And they were locked. And I didn't know what to do. And it was excruciating. And it was, that was the first time I dislocated anything. So now I started thinking, maybe the guy was too rough. So I didn't take it as a thing. But right, right after that, it became more of a regular thing that my jaws would pop out. Then it was like, okay, maybe it's just a jaw thing. Maybe I have a jaw issue. But then in the same year, I started getting extreme allergies. Like I, I knew I was intolerant to a lot of things, but the first one I realized was my skin. Don't don't judge me, but I realized I was allergic to petroleum jelly. Not judging you at all. I don't think that's as unusual as one might think. No, no, no. The judgment is that I used to, after I found out I was allergic to it, I used to ah. use it as a <laughs> to miss photo day. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I don't I don't know why, but I didn't I didn't like photo day at school. I didn't like I didn't like being in a group photo for some reason. So every time that came up, I would use Vaseline because I know it's gonna make me look really oh bad. Goodness. And then I would miss school. And well, I never missed school. At I least you school. knew. Exactly. At least you had sort of like you knew the reaction by clockwork, so you could plan. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. I learned that. In my early high school life, like um, grade, I don't know how you guys use grades, but with us, there's grade eight till 12, then you're done with high school. Same. And then we've got, oh, okay. Then so it was like around grade eight, nine. That's when I discovered the, the reaction and whatnot. So I kind of used it not in a good way and I'm not proud of it, but that happened. Hey, <laughs> we all have our awkward teenage years. I don't blame you. <laughs> so that happened. And then I moved. I moved from uh, Lesotho or Free State in South Africa. Because I went to school in the Free State. It's just across the border. It's like a 30 minutes drive. Not, maybe less, depending on the person. Um, so I moved to Botswana. Now in Botswana, that's when things started getting hectic. I don't know. I think I was trying, I was starting to become a teenager, like a real teenager now. I was starting to become around 14, 15, 15. Let's put it at 15. So now my body is supposed to be strong and everything, the features are getting, you're starting to curve up and your body's starting to change. That's when things started hitting a fan for me. Mm. Now I would wake up with multiple dislocations. You name it, jaw, shoulder, elbow. And now I'm starting to figure out, like, am I a normal person? What's going on with me? And the parents are not really concerned, but they're concerned. It's like a half-half thing. I get to the doctors and the doctor's like, that's not normal. You're supposed to only incur such dislocations only if you fall off a building. Right, or, and that's happening to you in your sleep. Yes, or like you have a really intense impact accident, like a car accident or something. Right. And I'm like, ha, I wake up and this thing's out. Like, explain, what do I do in my sleep? I don't, 
even move because like my bedside if I'm sleeping alone, I swear to God, the other side is like perfectly made. So I don't move around. So that doesn't make any sense. How do I wake up with this location? Explain. Yeah. And the doctors are like, we really don't know the answer to that. But what we're going to do is we're going to treat what we get and get it because we don't understand your body. Okay. So we got to just accept that I got loose joints. That's one thing that we told me like, okay, this child has loose joints. But as time went by, other things started happening. I My digestion started getting wonky. I would eat something, like a piece of something, really small piece, and then my stomach would grow and I would look like I'm nine months pregnant instantly. Mm. And we didn't understand what that is and what causes that. And now I'm like, okay, something is not right with me. I've been eating this food before, but the, the reaction I'm getting is ridiculous like I once ate yeah. a bean one sugar bean to taste wow. that the salt was right and it was my tummy got so big it pushed out my rib cage and dislocated my rib cage <gasps> now I've got like a stomach this big with a rib that looks deformed mm, wow I get rushed to the <laughs> ER the nurses look at me. look they're like oh pass everybody else just go in we don't don't sit Get to the doctor, like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. We need a telescopy to come check why your tummy is so big and what went on. If your intestines are fine, then an x ray to make sure that it doesn't disturb your ribs. And I'm like, why am I here? Why am I at the hospital? And then I had a choice. They're like, you can either sit here and get admitted, or you can go home and then come back the following day to get the telescopy done. I'm like, I'm going home. There's no point to stay in the hospital with people who don't even know what to do. So, I started learning how to pretty much sort myself out, but this is still without a diagnosis. This is me reacting or rather quick fixing symptoms. Putting a Band-Aid on them. Yes, basically, Um, which was not bad. Like I said, and then with that, I started reducing a lot of things. So I would, the dislocations of the joints, of of the groin, um, the hips, started becoming intense and then the doctor would tell told me you have to stop being very physical so I'm a very introverted person and the things I used to do to make me feel healthy or better when I'm like having a bad day would be either I was dance or I would jog now this person mm-hmm. telling me you can't jog you can't dance you have to stop all those things gonna make it worse now I'm thinking are you trying to get me depressed well exactly because where is your outlet then do you know what I, I, I you know even if I was like gonna get a punching bag my joints my, my knuckles would pop out so nothing physical mm. was gonna help me in any way and I'm dealing with this thing that nobody knows what it is right all you can do is help me as I come in and even when I come in it's not guaranteed that they're gonna understand what's gonna happen that day they is not a guarantee Right. Some of these, and then we realize that some of the medications they would give any regular person having similar symptoms don't work with me or mm. like local anesthetic it doesn't work with me I don't die I, I I'm, I'm awake I'm up I'm like yo hello are we still wow. here uh, wow and then that I remember one doctor got freaked out it's like the amount of anesthetic that they have to use yeah that we just gave you should have knocked you out completely Right. Well, and that's the kind of thing you only learn by doing as well. And that's a bit of a, mis- a misadventure if if you're getting general anesthesia and you're getting a procedure done and 
you know, you need to use much more anesthesia than your average person. I mean, an anesthesiologist would be beside themselves, I'm sure. Yeah, no, that's very true. Luckily for me, I, for some reason, I don't, I think I'm very blessed. Um, I'm a very spiritual person. Uh, for some reason, every time the procedure thing would come up, something would tour it out. So I don't eventually get the procedure done, which mm-hmm. is good because we still didn't know what condition I had, right? Yeah. And you may have had corrective surgeries that would have caused further damage rather than yes. fixing the problem. Yeah. Uh-huh. We learned later. It's like, no, it's a good thing. I never had any of this. And then there's the whole point that I don't heal very easily. My scars take longer to heal. So I'm just thinking you're going to invasively open me up and I generally don't heal from a cut caused by a knife. Yeah. How would then taking out things take like what a year to heal? I don't have the time. The pain is not worth it. So with time I went to university, that's when things hit the fan. I don't know why. Because the other ones I'll say is adolescent and whatnot. But then I don't know why specifically that year things went Do you think down. it was stress maybe? I mean, often I hear stories about people who um, their diseases start to take shape probably in high school. And then by the time they get to university, you're working so hard and sort of pushing your body to be social and, and party, but also study hard. And, and all of a sudden our bodies give out. And I wonder if it's sort of that cultural thing of you go to college and you just overdo it, that we're all taught that, you know? Could be the reason. I never thought of it that way, to be honest, um, because I just felt like I was a lazy person anyway. So the, the podding thing didn't really happen much. And to be honest, I had the best first year that most people would would say they it wasn't so pleasant. I mm. though I had an amazing time, but the body didn't love me. Uh, that's when I started realizing I have no before I left because my mom was really curious about my health I went to a homeopath doctor to go check some of the allergies I may have and a lot of things came up so from that I won't lie I did not use it entirely as I got it the results so I had the list I still continue eating the stuff that I was told I shouldn't eat but then I'll see one by one that, oh, yeah, no, wheat and I don't mix. It literally makes me crawl on the floor. Okay, meat, mm. ah, I need to cut down bit by bit. So with that, I was very thankful that I went to a, now I understood why they were happening because I already had a test done. Mm. But then things started getting worse. I would start getting dizzy suddenly, uh, extreme insomnia. And for a college student, insomnia doesn't help you at all. Because already you are not living your normal hours. You're already studying throughout the night. So the little space time you're getting to take a nap, you are not able to sleep. Not that you don't want to. You're exhausted, but you can't sleep. And for me, for some, I don't know if everybody else experienced it. Even when I got sleep, I would get sleep paralysis. Yeah. So that, that adds on to more stress. Because obviously now you're in your sleep and you're fighting something you can't really say you can grasp. So that was a bit of a problem. And then towards the end of that first year, which is 2010, so the, the, I think it's a very specific date, uh, everything went down. The stomach thing got worse. Uh, I would collapse out of nowhere. But my collapsing was weird because I was not the type of person who got, I wasn't completely out. I wouldn't be able to move 
or be I'll be very weak but I wouldn't how do I say your Some mind was fully on. active yes, it sounds like mind. yeah it was, so it was like a cataplexy yeah it's cataplexy yes I could still kind of hear what's going on but I can't really move I can't really respond I, my body's weak so it was more of a physical thing than a neurological thing if I can put Absolutely. it that way yep yes so 2010 December, I remember this clearly. I went, me and a friend of mine who was from Austria, we decided to do like a seven African tour where we went to different countries and start exploring. You know how, like, yes, people in university do try to explore life and find out who yeah. they are. So Especially because that's that. also the last time you're presumably going to be a student and you're going to start working and you're going to have more exactly. time during your summers as a student. So that's the time to explore. Exactly. So it was our summer. Well, our summer is December and you guys is June, right? So our it was yeah. our summer. We went doing the things. Then I got one, some, I don't remember which place, but there was a place, particular place that I experienced a new symptom. Now this symptom, I would, I don't know how to call it. Like I would be lax, like really, my muscles would literally drop and I would feel like a jellyfish to some extent. And like you try to pick me up, I just, fall over like a like, ragdoll yes you would literally need three people to carry me so that I stand up straight or else I just wow. blow up on the floor wow so when I experienced that I got I went to the docs well I was still at the trips but as soon as I got home I explained it to my mom and I went straight to the doctor and then it happened in the doctor's office and he got freaked out he's like you're saying all these things but you didn't you didn't express this one that he just saw and then immediately I got admitted so it wasn't just that we thought it was just going to be a okay, in and out situation. And the As it has says, been always. Yes, exactly. So he's like, nope, you can't, you can't let someone like this be working in the streets. This is very dangerous. It's, mm. it's, it's dangerous for everybody. She will drop, someone will hit her with a car. Some just, we don't know what this is. So they just put her in. Yeah. Now, you know how doctors would now run tests without mm. listening to you? Yes. They run well, tests that happens then, over there too. <laughs> yes. They run tests. They come back clear. God forbid. They come out clear. And then when they are clear, they start trying to make analogies of why you should you might why you probably still there. They start telling you that you either a hypochondriac or it's a mm. it's a mental issue yeah, that it's all in your head. Surely all at in this your point. Head. In fact, then they make it seem like you're causing it. Yeah. You are literally causing yourself to be sick. Look, I'm a very understanding person. I try to hear people out. So my theory was, okay, sir, Mr. Whoever you are, let's say you are right. That it is my brain. I would understand it on the droppings, maybe the collapsing, but explain how the brain is strong enough to pop bones out of my sockets. Correct. The neurological one, yes, possibly. I've heard of it. Pseudo seizures and whatnot. Those things are, are there, they, they are possible. But explain this one. How does one's brain function to such a high IQ perception where it pops joints out? <laughs> yeah. And they would never have answers for that. Good for you for being able to ask that tough question and challenge them that way. Because I don't think your average patient here in the U S at least would be empowered enough to even like, I wouldn't even have thought about that in the moment. 
No, nobody does actually. It's not. It's not a. It's not a day thing or it's just the me thing. I don't know what species I come from or where I grew <laughs> up. But I, my mom's reaction every time I would ask this question, like, shh, don't don't aggravate the doctor. She he needs to. And I'm like, hey, if this person does anything wrong to me, I die. Yeah. And then for them, it's like, oops, sorry, we have bad news. Uh, so I and also thank goodness. Them. And thank goodness these other rare disease patients have you as an advocate too. I mean, someone as outspoken well, as you. That's how started. So I'm like, no, I'm sorry, ma'am. So my mom was still a bit resistant in my always fighting for myself with the doctors because what happened that day, luckily for her, for me, she fought for me. I remember her saying, we are leaving. After that man said I was crazy. She packed my stuff without having a discharge letter. She packed myself, told the nurse that was responsible that day, went to the administration for her and was like, you're taking her off the list. We'll pay however far she's been in here. We're leaving. They're like, no, mm. but it's against. You can't come back if anything else happens again. It's like, no, we're good. It's okay. It's so you were okay. empowered. You, it's almost like you and your mother empowered each other there. Yes. And that was, yeah, that, that time it was like, no. But then unfortunately, uh, a few weeks, apparently, a few days passed by, I think, and I got really sick. I don't remember. Apparently, it was intense. So the stories differ from different people, depending on their perspective of what happened that day. Because I, I realize a lot of people want to tell me. They say that I don't need to know the burden of that day stuck in my head. I should be glad I don't remember. That's how bad it was. Hmm. So I know... I was transferred to the local hospital in the Soto in Maseru. Well, not a ho- it's a private hospital, but quite good. Well, at least for me, the doctor has taken time to figure my symptoms out and always asked me, what have you discovered about yourself? So we write it down so that he, with his knowledge, takes out what I say and then, you know, helps me. Uh, mm-hmm. So he couldn't help me that day, apparently. So he transferred me to South Africa, uh, to a mediclinic in South Africa. And I was in a coma for some time. And wow. Yeah, I know. I was in ICU, coma. Life did not, it was a, I was gone for some time. When you say some time, about how long are we talking? A few weeks. Wow. That's... I mean, yeah, I'm not really sure. I lost count of time. I'm not present. And plus it's something that, like I said, it doesn't really, they don't, people in my house don't really like discussing it. So I don't bother them because it was during Christmas time. And so they lost Even Christmas. More emotional. It was mm. very emotional. Uh, so I don't, unless it comes up by someone else remembering, but they also won't really stay too long with it. Mm. So I don't like bringing it up. All I remember is I woke up. <laughs> I had this conversation. I don't know if people say, I know some people say they experience it as well. The slight thing that comes in, you walk and then you have a, to decide whether you are staying or not. I remember specifically that I'm not. So this is also, this is now not just a coma. This is a near death experience. So I'm like, I'm not, I I remember something that I've never experienced before or ever again. And it was more like, I'm not done yet. Uh, I still had to live. And then I woke up not long after that. But now me, because I'm used to sleep paralysis, I'm thinking I'm in a sleep paralysis, but I'm up. I realized that my hands are locked, like they are tied up and I'm moving and I'm making a noise. A nurse comes in. This nurse is unprofessional from my view. She starts screaming at me as a patient who's been in a coma for so long, screaming at me and telling me, 
you know what she says? She's like, I will tie your stomach too if you don't stop moving. <gasps> but like, aren't you thrilled that I'm moving? <laughs> this is the best news of the day. <laughs> you know, and then I, the doctor came in. She was a really nice doctor. She comes in and she's like, no, calm down, little one. Um, you're in hospital. Remember that my memory prior to that, if there was any memory, I was home. Yeah. So the lady's like, no, you are in hospital, love. And down. And instantly when someone tells you in hospital, you're like, oh, okay, I'm up. Okay, I'm in hospital. All right. But especially because apparently what I heard is that the day before that, they were discussing to switch off the machines because they thought it was hopeless because I wasn't reacting back. Wow. So I guess that the ultimatum question of you when I come back thing was that I had to make a a bit of divine timing there, I'd say. Yes, I would say that too. But then I'm up, my parents are told they walk in, there's this woman and this other person that talking to me, I have no idea who they are, but they're my parents. So I had temporary amnesia for more than a year. I did not know who those people were. Oh my goodness. I had wow. no idea who they were. I was just like, <sighs> but I just, I recognized the sympathy and empathy that it came from a good place, but I didn't know who they were. The only person mm-hmm. I remember, which apparently my mother was pissed at, was my little sister. <laughs> she was the only one that her memory was very, and this is the only one I asked for. Mm-hmm. It's the only person that I recalled. I didn't even know I wore glasses, for example. So I'm I'm up and I see glasses on the side of the wall and I realize I can't see, but like, and they're like, no, you need this. And I'm like, oh, okay. I wear glasses. Okay, cool. You're sort Check. of doing the calculations as you go. Yes. I'm trying to figure out what is going on. Anything new wasn't a problem. Like, so being in a hospital was comfortable because it was new. So I, as you told me what it is and then what to do, I fitted in very well. Hmm. But when people come who expect me to know them and remember you it was a problem sure. it took me such a long time because after that year of trying to figure out what's wrong with me mind you there's still no diagnosis there's all this commotion no mm. diagnosis uh they, i eventually got out of hospital and i was now more of an outpatient than a in fact no the first thing when they couldn't find out what's wrong with me they took me to a mental hospital wow after the ICD, I went to a mental hospital. With amnesia too, of all things. Yes. So what they were saying in that defense as a neurologist is like we, the mental hospital, that particular mental hospital has better neurological uh, machines that could help see if there's something wrong. Yes, we can determine whether it's mental or it is physical. And when we can, it will be easier for the doctors to know where to go front. So they're like, please don't take it as a, we putting them into an institution. We're just trying to, rule out but the difficulty there is that potentially you're also in oblivion and forgotten yes but for some reason the moment things i would catch up on like in the moment it's just the things that happened prior to that that i couldn't catch up so um i get to this place is full of people with a lot of diagnosis things i've never heard before they you you get people with schizophrenia bipolar uh body dysphoria, this and that, this and that. I'm just like, ooh. The only thing that I was very aware of at the time was like depression. I didn't even understand what anxiety was mm. at the time. I was very oblivious. Like, like you know, you can't really sue me. I'm just like, I, I don't know what's going on here. 
but I have a very empathetic character about me. So even though I may not understand fully, I got the compassion. And I think because I didn't remember, it was even more pure. Mm. I didn't have a lot of inf- uh, information to, you know, then make anything other than just being pure towards the person experiencing whatever they're experiencing. So I was there for like a couple of weeks and they found nothing. I, I won't lie. There were times where they would give me pills. I would not drink them because I'm like, if, if you're going to give someone you don't know what's wrong with them pills that Absolutely. you don't know what would body. Like, how does Good that make you. that make sense? You don't yeah. know what's wrong with me, but you're giving me medication in a mental place. What will happen? So I was like, nope, thank you. I'm not going to drink these. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I did a test. It's called a um, sanity test to see how sane you are. Wow. I got 85%, which is rather high because the doctor was like the, the, the clinical, not psychologist, but what's the other one? Psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Yes. She was like, by the way, you're one of the highest people I've ever in my entire life met. Mm. And she was like, my sanity level is 75% and you 85%. And I'm a doctor dealing yeah. with these things every day. And it's like, whatever's wrong with you, love is not mental. Hmm. It's, it's physical. I can see it. You're weak. You can barely touch, stand up from a chair without feeling weak. I see it. But that must have been very validating for you to have. Not, it has nothing to do with you. To have that doctor say that, though, and, and you know, yeah, it did, validate it your experience. Yeah, I, and I didn't take it bad because I, I took it as a, a learning journey being there because there's a lot of people that I met and things that I experienced that I probably would have never experienced in my life. And so I took it as like friendships, memories and learning instead of it being I was stuck in a mental hospital. Uh, and it was a really nice one. It was really posh. It looked like a hotel. So oh, how nice. Speak. That's nice. That's yes, not what yes. you hear about them over here. I'll tell you that much. Yes, it was like a, it's like a special rehabilitation and mental hospital kind of private scenario there. Mm. I mean, the last day before the last day or two before we leave, they they take it to a manicure and pedicure. <gasps> Gosh, I wish they'd do that over here. You never hear about things like that. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, because the problem is in your mental. So you need to look good to have confidence. Because if you've got a mental problem, you need to have a confidence thing about you. Even though everything here is not okay, everything outside should at least be better than it, what it is in the brain, you know? Yeah. So I think yeah. it works. I, I, I know, mean, it makes you feel good about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Especially like sort of re-entering society and, and yes. being able to practice self-care and normalizing that kind of practice mm-hmm. as well of like, we're going to take care of ourselves so that we can get out into the world. Like that's a really lovely idea, actually, yeah. isn't it? Let's give it's you a spa nice. day. <laughs> It was amazing. So that happened, but the problem is still there. We know I'm not crazy, but the problem is not gone. Yeah. So I started becoming a pay, uh, an outpatient. So my mother would be a, was a full-on caregiver to me. It was so intense, Lauren, that my mom would rather not leave me at home with maybe a housekeeper or whatever or any of my siblings, she would rather take me around with her car. Wow. Because she didn't want to put any burden on anyone else but herself. And also she was probably worried about what would happen if she weren't there. Exactly. So she would rather just have me around all the time. Yeah. But it got there was a time where it got so bad that I couldn't even eat anymore. 
nothing could go down. I couldn't walk anymore. I couldn't talk anymore. And again, like I said, I'm very spiritual. I, I asked source God, whichever one would call. I was like, you have a decision. Either I die or you make this go away or make it better. I don't know. If I don't wake up tomorrow working, talking, or at least trying to do those things, just take me because I, me, death is not a problem. I have no problem with death. I feel like it's probably safer, sweeter, gentle compared to what I'm living right now. Yeah. So let's make it. And the morning, the following morning, I woke up being able to stand up and talk. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to be aggressive in order to get things done. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Message <to>. received. <laughs> yeah. But as funny as it sounds now, it really wasn't really funny because I was pretty skinny. Like mm-hmm. I, I wasn't, yeah, I was, I was underweight. I wouldn't even say skinny because right. I think Saying skinny is a is a, is a, is an insult to those who are naturally skinny. Hmm. Uh, we've got different body sizes, people. So I was pretty small. I didn't have much energy coming in because you know I was food was selective and you were probably malnourished. Yes, and I couldn't even go to the bathroom. Like taking wow. uh, going to do number two was if I was able to do it in three weeks, once in three wow. weeks. That was like, oh, let's have a party. Which mm. is not normal. You're supposed to go three times a day if you yeah. if you're really, really healthy. You yeah. know? So that was a thing, but we still don't have a diagnosis. Man. Then I started when I got when I got to that stage of getting better, I started doing my own research. I started getting my test results, results from the doctors, and then researching based on that. So I'll eliminate mm. things and then eventually I came across Alice Downer syndrome. And then I went into, at the time, there was no LS Downer Society yet. There was still ENFD, I think it's called. So I found them on the net and I started talking to them. And as I started talking to them, I asked, I remember asking particular doctors, because you've got, you've got a, a thing where you can talk to doctors, patients and caregivers. So I, I send a message that I believe I have this condition. Can you help me? by writing a letter that would help the doctors conduct a certain test that would confirm that I really do have this condition. And the ladies were like, I don't think you even need a test because from the symptoms, I'm pretty sure you have LSD the syndrome. The question would then be which type right, and to which degree. But it does like, also okay. require genetic testing. I, I mean, I, I'm curious yes. to know as well, because genetic testing here in the US and certainly in the UK as well is extremely expensive. And so doctors don't often prescribe it. In Africa, we don't even talk about it. It's not even on the topic. Right. It's not even something we discuss. It's not even discuss. Like, you've got the clinical results. Cool. Then try to live your best life with the little you know. Right. Because getting a genetic test, even them thinking of getting the material to conduct the genetic test from wherever, let's say U.S., is something mm-hmm. they don't discuss. Like, we don't even have it in-house. Right. The whatever equipment we need to carry out a genetic test. So little girl, um, at least you know what you have now. Let's, let's, if you do get afforded the opportunity, yes, go. But right. let's not get a thing because I still don't have the genetic testing even today. It's just that because of the research I've done, I kind of sort of know how to, where to put myself, but it's still not a sure thing because the test has not been conducted. But right. I'm pretty sure I don't have the most classical one, which is the type three. It's not just type three because my symptoms 
are way above type three. Yeah, it's not just the hypermobile type. There's no, a lot going on. Because my organs get affected a lot. Yeah. And most of the hypermobile people don't really talk much about organs having almost rupturing and all those things. I've never really heard them talk about organs in that intensity. And I've had it. Yeah. Uh, so I don't, I think I fall either under type one or something of that sort. And I will, I one day, hopefully I would get it or someone on your show would hear me out and want to give me a test once. I don't know, for free. I don't know. I'm just being hopeful. <laughs> We're one just day, spitballing day, here. <laughs> yeah. You know, wow. they say manifest your reality. They do. Well, you've done it a few times talking to the big guy upstairs. So, yeah, so, so this, it sounds like, so this was really through other patients that you found out that you most likely, your own research and then discussing with other My patients. My own research, yes. Yeah. Yes, so, because I also imagine, because from what we seem to understand about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome itself as well, this is something that is more prevalent in like Northern European descendants, right? Uh, but what yeah, do you think about problem. that? Do we think that that's, that's actually the- true? Because here no. you are. In Africa, no, it's right. It's, not. it's just that it we're not, not catching it, are we? No, it's not prevalent. It's just that Europe and America, Northern countries have more tools to diagnose or that there's been more patients went out and researched. In Africa, we've got yeah. things that are, doctors are dealing with every day, things like malaria and whatnot. So there's not even enough um there's not the infrastructure. Yes, to diagnose the people. So it's not that we don't have it. And mind you, I've had a doctor tell me this in my face. You can't have Ellis Downer syndrome. You are black. Mm. And I'm this is me in my head. I don't know if I said out loud because my tongue can go off sometimes. But I, I remember thinking, but it's not a pigmentation condition it yeah. is a connective tissue disorder meaning as long as you're human and you've got connective tissue it can affect, affect you. you so yeah it's a genetic mutation mama like sir if you yeah. were to tell me that i don't have a specific skin condition based on my skin i wouldn't fight you as a doctor i'd be like okay no maybe my melanin makes me more non-prevalent to the you know, and people with a fair skin are more prone to having this condition. But this is not a skin issue. Hmm. I do have a skin issue because of Alexander syndrome, but this is not caused right. by the skin issue. The issue yeah. is a mutation in my genes. Now explain to me, how does that go to do anything with my race? I looked yeah. at this individual and I was like, and we run to you people in trying to save our lives. How do we <laughs> trust people like this? Yeah. Absolutely. Well, when they're clearly not listening to your own experience firsthand. Like, I, you know, things like that shocked me. I'm like, because, you know, growing up as a kid and you're like, no, doctors are saviors, um, firefighters save us from fire, you know, those kind of things. And you, it's in, it's like with priests and you're like, priests are holy and they obey God. So anything that you hear as you become an adult and see, and it's not that way. You're like, wait a minute, have I been lied to? Mm. I know, yes, people are human. People are like, no, remember, we are still human and they still false and whatnot. But sometimes it is a shocker, especially if you're trying to fight for your life and then you, you get some responses like that. And, it, 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 as me, as a, as, a, as a growing young adult, I'm just looking at it. I feel like this medical system is failing me. Yeah. It's dismally yeah. failing me in, in a very high way. If I have to be vocal in order to be heard, I should be I should be confident to walk into a hospital, unable to move 
I know that I'm going to leave that place being able to move and talk. Mm. But my fear was always I should not enter the hospital unconscious because they're going to fail me. They're going to put in medication that's going to make me worse mm. or they're going to diagnose me wrong. And it was the anxiety I would have before I entered the hospital if I had an episode. Yeah. That's not okay. Mm. I don't care who says what. That is not okay. No. You shouldn't, you're sick already. You shouldn't be thinking about things like that. Like, okay, I can't move now. I've collapsed. You're going to send me to a hospital. They're probably going to misdiagnose me and think um, I've got a heart condition. I do probably have a heart condition, but they're going to miss the whole point and concentrate on the heart and forget that this whole systematic thing is affecting everything in my body, including my eyes and nose, you name it. So it was always a, a frightening thing having to be um, admitted in hospital, especially with a doctor that doesn't know me, who hasn't experienced me yet. You were very it's much at their mercy. Pretty much, but also the mercy could actually kill you. you. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm wondering, I mean, obviously we we talked about you're an outspoken patient, you know, um, and you and your mom both seem to have empowered one another in in these clinical settings. Is, Is that something that you just always had within you? How did you learn to speak up? Was it just a lot of bad experiences that made you finally yes. go, forget it? Yes, because mm-hmm. as anybody, I had stage fights growing up. I couldn't go and poof. You would always, you would ask me a question. I'll be sound like I'm mumbling the entire time because I was really shy to speak out. So I don't know what happened. I don't know what clicked. I think something was like, if you don't stand up for yourself, you're going to die. Yeah. So little sweet corner and start speaking. Yeah. I think that is what happened. It was you, would you say that, that in that sense, like getting sick or getting your disease, realizing that you had these symptoms and that your body was a battlefield, if you will, mm, that that much. sort of enabled you to step into who you really are? Yes. And that's why everybody asked me when, you know, people be like, what would you do if you had an opportunity to not have this condition and live life. No, I'm like, I don't, I don't want that life. I don't know what it is. I don't know. I've never experienced and it's I'm okay with what I have. And they're like, why? I'm like, because in that I think in their heads it's like you've been through so much. Wouldn't you have wanted a, a smooth sailing hmm. uh life without pain? I'm like, first of all, I went to school really early. If I didn't have these hiccups in my life and not sick and been put out of school, I probably would have been a very arrogant girl who thinks they're educated and uh, it can step on everybody's toes I god forbid I, I'm not like that you but I'm humbled. just looking at like, I'm like I feel like this life hmm. is me yeah and I don't believe I would have found me if I didn't experience it that's I'm kind of patient. a beautiful thing isn't it that's a it you is. know I'm, I'm more patient with people I'm understanding with more people and I'm tolerant to more things hmm. And I've seen it around with other people. Like people will be like waiting in the line. And after a certain amount of time, they're like, no, people should be addressing to us. And me, I'm just chilling. I'm just like, yeah, Hmm. this is life. I waited years just to get a diagnosis. I've waited for everything to get help. I've, so for me, it's okay. If you really, do you really need the thing that you're waiting for? Yes. So just sit down, calm down. It will get to you eventually. I'm not giving the pass and saying that it's okay that people are taking that time to assist us, but just sit down and because there's nothing going to do that's going to change it. Just be patient. 
So I have that personality and I owe it all to the experiences that I had. It has nothing to do with anything that was taught to me. I would fully put it based on my experience as a sickly person. And I wouldn't change it for the world, honestly. And plus, without it, our DLA would have never been born. Yeah. I mean, I'm wondering as well about your relationships. Like you mentioned, particularly when you were in a coma and, and, you know, your family, it was Christmas time, right? So your family sort of knew you to be lost to them for a time over a very important time of the year to them. You know, having this illness and its impact on your relationships with your family, do you think that it's given you an opportunity to deepen those relationships or examine those relationships? Like what, what impact has, has the diagnosis had on, or, or the life of living with EDS had on your relationships? Okay. This is going, we're going to get deep now. Um, So, okay. So my dad and I are very close. Uh, so is my mom and I. I don't think there's any different, but we, we're close in different ways. Like I know way, what to do with my mom and I know what to do with my dad. But, and my siblings were also highly affected because the, the, when I started doing all this, the, the youngest one was pretty young, but she had to assume an adult responsibility because sometimes if someone else is not there, she would help bath me. That is right. traumatizing to a child. That's no child of that age should experience bathing their older sister that has an age gap of almost 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So that was, that's, that's one of the things that were, that happened in the house. And my mom knew her daughter was sick, Hmm. but after I found a way to get diagnosed, because I remember that the doctors in the U S wrote the letter and then I did get diagnosed and the doctor in Botswana was afterwards was like, I'm so sorry that we considered you as a hypochondriac. You really are sick. Wow. It's just that I studied this condition once in my degree, a couple of years. I've never said, met anyone like you before. So it wasn't easy for me to quickly pick it up. That's and really meaningful that they apologized. It was until later on, I had other symptoms and she called me a hypochondriac again. So Okay, so this is now a systemic problem. She has an issue. Yep. Yes, okay. Yeah, so it's okay. Pathological. So my right. mom, yeah, my mom, my mom, after the diagnosis came up and now there's readings and there's, 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 there's all this literature on this condition, she didn't want to believe that I have it. She would throw it every time I used the word Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. She would literally throw it. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think because it's genetic, she took a lot of blame on it. Right. And figured that there's something wrong with her. So I do sympathize with that. And I do understand where it was coming from. So yeah. there is no ill feeling. I understand that in as much as I was going through something, we were also going through something. And going through something mentally and going through something physically are two different things. Personally, I feel like the ones that go through it physically are better off because settling the mind is hard. Mm. But physically, sometimes I can take a, a very good pill that can make me forget for some for some hours. But mentally, you really can't do that. It's, yeah. it's really not that easy. Yeah. Uh, so my mom had that problem. My dad, on the other hand, I don't. Maybe you'll tell me what that is. I don't have a word for what he did. Hmm. Say, for example, I would have a seizure. Out of I would say it's out of frustration. He would literally shout at me saying that I should stop it. And I'm like, I don't think 
Hmm. Anybody in this world will cause themselves to have a seizure. It sounds to me like denial. Yes. I think they were both kind of going through denial in their own different ways. Yeah. And, well, this is one I of the, the stages of grief, no? <laughs> yes. Because I think for my dad, being uh, the, sub, the one that everybody has to look at to make things right, that's the title he gave himself. For my guess, the moment he had a family, right? And now he's looking at this child that he's hopeless. He does not know what to do. Nothing that he does is solving the problems. Because there's one day she was, he was like, I see you sick, but I know what the doctors do to you. I don't even think, I don't know if it's even a right thing to keep you here or take you to the hospital. Because I may get to the hospital and they're worse than being home. And they also mean, because doctors could be really, really mean sometimes. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I feel like I'm hitting a, a, a brick here. Yeah. I, someone, I know someone would say I'm negligent by keeping you in a house looking like this. Hmm. But I also don't want to add to your stress by taking you to the hospital only to frustrate you even further. I mean, it sounds like he was considering all the options there, which is actually wonderful, right? You know, he yes. was trying to see it from every angle. But of course, that's frustrating because it's like, what is the answer? And you want to be the one to provide the answer when the whole point here is that nobody had the answer. No one had the answer. And it was really frustrating because I think like just like I'm saying, he, he, he's, he sees himself as a protector of the family. And now he feels like he can't really protect this thing, person that he brought to this earth and he's failing mm. in a way. Uh, so those, those, those particular relationships were really, really, really affected yeah. in a way. Uh, and my other sister who's in the middle, she, she's the one that I remembered when I got out of the coma. Hmm. She was also very affected so much so that she had her own other issues, but I think it also triggered her depression. Sure. Yeah. So usually like right after that, where me, I started getting my diagnosis, we started picking up that she must be clinically depressed. Mm. And I believe in as much as this, I know there's other issues that built to it, that particular scenario made it worse. Mm. It kind of built to it because she felt hopeless as well, you know? Yeah. And it affected her a lot. And apparently, yes, and then there's something that happened in between all of this. I had a car accident in 2014. Oh my goodness. Not long after my diagnosis. Finally, finally the car accident to dislocate all of the, the joints. <laughs> but the it impact. Saved, saved me there, by the way. The doctors say hmm. if it wasn't for EDS, I would have cracked my I would have been paralyzed. But for some reason this the, the spine bended in a way that only the, the bones on the sides cracked, but not the actual my goodness. spinal cord. So I mean, the that's doctor incredible. Was like, he was like, thank your rubbery body because yeah. you would shattered. I'm like, <laughs> I mean, in a way, you're like a cat with nine lives. You know, be careful. He's like, be careful. I think you're on your last life. I don't know. Don't I've only trying. heard about like three so far. I'd say you got at least six left. <laughs> There's more, but that's not relevant to this. So right. <laughs> we'll stick. To, so he's like, you, 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 you've, you're one person has tested death a lot of times. Mm. And I think that's why I don't have a fear of death. 
Yeah. But because I have a fear of death, I feel like I'm one of those people going to live to like 100 and I don't like it. And I can feel it. I feel like I'm going to live for a very long time. Like, yeah. oh my God, why? Well, but what else have you learned is that you have to speak up for what you want anyway. Yes, 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 yes. I should start speaking up that, yeah. okay, maybe 50. Can we? Can we? <laughs> We're like 98, just not 100. <laughs> About 100. 100 is a bit too much. You, yeah. You're pushing it here. Yeah. But well, overall, it did affect most of my relationships, especially yeah. friends. Because friendship, what friendships, to be honest, because eh, hmm. you, would, you would think someone's your friend and you hope they'll, they'll, they'll come through a hospital and visit you. The hospital was very, very empty. Yeah. Calls became few. Uh, this is a common story that the friends start dropping off. Yeah, they start dropping off. And even the ones that start try to still hang around you get frustrated. Like, we can't hang out in the way we used to hang out anymore. You have to be cautious of whether the weather is right. Um, yeah. You can't just go up to without checking the weather forecast first. They didn't have the same kind of empathy up. that you did. Yes, they don't. And I started, luckily for me, I think the fact that I was naturally a, an introvert even before I knew I was sick. It helped because I'm thinking, imagine an extrovert having to now be concluded in a room or hospitals suddenly after having seen certain things in life and now having to also live with the fact that people don't want to see them anymore in the way they wanted to be seen. And also, I don't know, I just feel like it would have been so much worse if I was an extrovert and I did like going out and I did like being around people. Luckily for me, it was not a problem being alone. Mm. It just also gave me strength knowing that you need to live for yourself. You're not always going to have someone to advocate for you or someone to say it's going to be okay. So if you don't wake up in the morning and say you want to live, ain't nobody going to do it for you. And it's not to say the ones who don't or don't have the capacity to do it are in a wrong or they're weak. We are different. We have different personalities. It's just, this is specific to me. I had to pep talk myself to tell yeah. myself that I need to be strong for myself. I need to out of the situation on my own because clearly everything else that was afforded to me wasn't seeming to work at the time. So I got diagnosed because I worked for it to get the diagnosis. And I felt like a sick person doesn't even have the strength to be doing that. But for some reason, I had it, and it really benefited me in the long run. But we got the diagnosis. Now I still had to be up because I'm the one still doing the research, remember, on my own body. I still had to always pray not to be unconscious so that I can tell the next doctor, by the way, I have Ellis Donner syndrome, and I've got this and this and that. Be careful when you put so something small. Um, IV line. Uh, my veins pop they are useless. Mm. They are very small. You need to use a butterfly needle. Some uh, One doctor said I, my veins are worse than a premature newborn. Oh, my goodness. Wow. At my age. Like, thank you? So, <laughs> Is that a compliment? <laughs> or like, how am I supposed to take that? No, I'll just take it. It's a, I'm going to poke you, but if I, if I miss three times, I'm leaving you alone. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. I'm that patient that when a doctor sees me and they know me, they're like, you're sick, sick, like sick, sick. I'm like, yeah. It's like, oh, not me. Mm-mm. 
<laughs> not me. I'm going to call the one we trust. We are not doing it. You're going to traumatize me. I'm going to miss and I'm going to be traumatized and I might not have the confidence to do it to someone else. So I no mean, thank you. That's great. Like as long as they're sending you higher up the ladder to the people who Yeah, no, they know usually her. do the ones in that particular hospital that will tell you, you know, and then there's one time last year I'd been good for the longest time, right? No symptoms whatsoever, like little things like headaches, but we can solve headaches, right? I get there, it got cold. I think it went from being warm to being really cold instantly and it started snowing. So my body just got shocked. Like it wasn't prepared. It, it just happened spontaneously. And I got into a body shock. Got to the hospital. Everything was dislocated. I was unable to walk. Everything was just extremely everywhere. The doctor comes in. He's also forgotten how to treat me because I've been well for a very long time. Oh, no. What do we do again? What do I usually give you? And I'm here thinking, I'm You're like, why am I paying you? <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. I've never seen. I'm sure they all do pray, the doctors, but you never see it happen. That gentleman was praying as he was putting that needle in me. I could see it. Yeah. He was he was on some other, we need intervention right now because this kid's body is doing things we it may have done it before, but we have forgotten because she's been so well for so long. And I was just, I don't know. I, I started panicking because, you know, when your body has been so disciplined for a while and then it starts going, yeah. like, again, no, going back. That's a, when you flare, when you haven't in a long time, it can be really shocking. It is worse than the first time, right? It's like, yes. it's worse than when you had it every day and people don't understand like, why are you freaking out? It's not like it's a new. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I've been so called normal for the past year. I don't even remember how to act. Yeah. This is the shock. I'm really traumatized right we here. Forget, and we forget. Like, we purposefully put the bad things out of our minds too. Yes. It's it's like an intentional thing. You go like, ah, no, 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 no. I'm okay now. I can work now. I can sit, you know, I'm all good. So we can, can we just move on? Yeah. And yeah, so that happened last year. Well, what does, what does treatment look like for you as well? I mean, are they, are you on medications? Do you do physical therapy? Like, are you being treated? Uh Uh-oh, you're making a face at me. I think somebody is not doing any treatments perhaps, but I mean, what is it? How are you maintaining your body and and trying to avoid flares? So my flare ups, the the way I've, 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 it's a, it's a personal thing. It's not, I wouldn't say I want to recommend it to everybody because we're all different so my number one thing is when I started realizing that this chronic condition I don't know the genetic issue behind it I started going the supplement way so I would understand okay so this is lacking in my body so let me try and find ways to put it back in either through food or supplements because chronic medication my thing was I don't know what's in it I don't know what's going to do to my body. So I tried my level best not to take any chronic medication yeah. unless I, unless it was a specific thing and we figure it out. And that's the only way to do it. For example, I would take um, Epilem for my seizures. That one, I'm like, okay, no, I see it. And I've seen that when I take it, they stop. So I would, you know, take those kind of chronic medication. But not that I liked it. It's just, we're trying to stop the problem now. But I started being more based on supplements over everything else and making sure that I eat healthy. So 
most of my foods are bought from health stores and not your regular supermarket. Very expensive compared to your everyday life, oh, yeah. but it has alternatively made my life better. And I take care of myself physically as well. As much as I can't do excessive exercises, I try to do yoga when I can. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, this is a personal journey, remember. Meditation has also helped yeah. because then the mindset, if you're always stressing and having a lot of anxiety, it flows, your flow ups tend to be more than when you have a calmer outlook to things. Mm-hmm. Not that you won't have flow ups when, when you're calmer, but they wouldn't be as repetitive as when you are not calm. Mindset is a as huge part of it. I mean, like I would, I would almost argue that like 50% of this healing journey is about mindset, right? Because you could yes. decide that you are not well and you feel like terrible all the time, or you could decide mm-hmm. that you're going to be okay despite it. And mm-hmm. that's a huge distinction. So that's, that's, that's the, I used that particular analogy to get out of it most of the time. So when I was covering my eyes, when you asked if I have any specific medication. Or treatment regimens. I mean, it sounds like it's lifestyle. So I've changed my lifestyle. And I know, and also, even if you are on supplements and whatnot, don't be ignorant and not go to the doctor when you're having a flare up. That's very ignorant and stupid. And you are just getting yourself into a big pit of things. But on an everyday basis, I try to make sure that I've got the vitamins and minerals I need mm. through whatever that may be available to me, food or otherwise, being supplements and stuff. Uh, I drink a lot of water, mm. like a little, a lot of water. And I try to be as active as I can. Like taking walks, because I can't run. I can't really do much movement. Swimming also helps because there's really very low resistance. Right, uh, but not everyone has a pool, so we have to note that. So that's not very available uh, to everybody every time. But when I do have the the op, yeah, the option to swim, I do swim to help me get fitter and better. Uh, so basically, yeah, that's kind of my my everyday routine. It sounds like it's really in. yeah. It's your day to day is really a mix of largely holistic and lifestyle approaches with yes necessary medications as needed, you know, if you're having a seizure, which could cause even worse injuries if you don't get the seizure under control kind of thing. Yes. Um, which is, yes. I mean, it's interesting because we find more and more that I have these conversations about rare disease and visible chronic illness with different people on the show. The impact that lifestyle diet and exercise and mindset can have on your health and well-being in general is huge, not only from a treatment perspective, but also from a prevention perspective, if you are genetically or otherwise predisposed to certain illnesses, but then also the importance of being able to recognize when essential oils are not going to cure this or yes. you know, like that you need exactly don't be ignorant when this, right. when, when, when the pain becomes protruding, you need to get yourself to a doctor, try and figure out what it is and act on it. Because, hmm. I mean, anybody with a chronic illness will know that you never know what's going to happen tomorrow. You may think you know your symptoms <laughs> and then a trick comes and you've got a new one. Your attitude about it, though, is very like, I still have to live my life. Oh, and yes. this is what I really appreciate is that you're like, look, 
I have this going on. I have EDS. It is not who I am. It is a part of who I am. And it's not going to prevent me from living my life as fully as I possibly can. Definitely. That is, you said it out of my mouth. That is, that's definitely me. I, and I don't, I feel like we all have problems and I tell people whether or not you've got a chronic condition or whatever, people are like, you're also sound-minded and you're so free-spirited as you speak about this. So I wouldn't survive. And I'm like, you probably have problems I wouldn't take, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even imagine. So we all have issues we're carrying. We just have to find ways to live with them as best as we can. So you take what you, you've been fed and you make use of it Yeah. in any way that you can. I think that's such a beautiful perspective. That's the way I I, I tend to look at it. I think like we all have problems. And there's opportunity for for beauty and for joy in there as well. Pretty much. And plus, let's be honest, I I don't know about other conditions, but I know for a fact EDS has its good stuff. I mean, I'm very flexible. Well, you survived that car crash without being paralyzed. You know, I'm very, there's things that, I'm like, I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't have this. So think mm. ups to me. Yeah. It's not all bad. Yeah. It's not all bad. And I mean, we're gonna get into it in just a minute, but also that you've been able to create a community around it too. Yes. Um, you know, like that's a huge part of it as well. Before we get into that though, like I'm curious to explore, like we've talked a bit about the, you know, the fact that like what you're dealing with is largely invisible. You know, you're walking in yes. looking perfectly fine, but we know that you can't lift a suitcase up or you might have a seizure here or the weather might make your joints go or, you know, um, and I, you know, given the fact that so many doctors couldn't diagnose you or don't know how to handle you as a patient, whether it's with in the healthcare system or with, you know, friends, family, what does it look like when or have you been confronted at any point and forced to justify the fact that you had an illness, that you had EDS, particularly since diagnosis or since you were able to find out what was going on? Yes. Yeah. Uh, like, what has that been like when you've had to sort of be like, no, this is happening. You can't see it, but this is happening, whether you believe it or not. Uh, I've had it. Well, I have, I wouldn't even say had it because then it means that it's no longer there. It is still there. Uh, where you'd have even a doctor really even though and I'm like no crazy person would go around searching a condition that's not really commonly found to know all these facts just for play I'm just saying it's not <laughs> something that's there in the present. if I say I'm diabetic there's pretty much a lot of information you can pick up from anywhere about diabetes hmm. but really in Africa Alice syndrome I'm a yeah. how, wow okay why would I yeah why would you make it want up? To, why would I make it up and why would I really just go on and on to days to try and figure out what's wrong with my body just to please why mm-hmm. it's a it's a for me it's a why are we even having this conversation can we try and get solutions instead of us having this debate yeah. but then I have there's the whole also everywhere when people have multiple times told me I'm too pretty to be sick and I don't know how pretty mm. how sickness looks like I'm still looking and searching for it please when you find it please tell me <laughs> I, I'm, I'm begging. when you find what 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 what, what sickness looks like yeah. please show me because I I don't understand when people are like no you're too pretty and then there's those parts where you go into like um 
an office building and you decide to use an elevator instead of a stair. Mm. And then you have these older people who consider you being lazy by not taking the staircase and taking mm-hmm. this escalator. And now you have to explain to someone, sorry, ma'am, but I can't go up the staircase. My heart won't even allow me to do two flights of stairs. Yeah. And now you're getting too personal. And as they find out, they feel bad. And it's a bit of a huge, and it's like, but you don't look at them like, but you can't tell but it's anything. None of your that. business. <laughs> like at the end and of the day, it's like, like it's none of your personal. business. And I feel like you're invading my privacy. I, I don't like the fact that all of my life experiences had to make me tough. That's the aspect I don't like about. I mean, it's interesting so it's, though, but because it, it sounds like, I mean, this has been an experience of ageism for sure. Like where people haven't taken you seriously because of your age maybe, but also do you think being a woman has, has yes. also yes. influenced those, right. That like sometimes, especially in the medical system or elsewhere, you're perceived as a woman in the medical system and it's like, Oh, well it must be in her head or she must be a hypochondriac. Like, like if you were a man walking into the same situations, would you have had a diagnosis in half the time? I believe so. I, I as much as we don't want to admit such things are, if I was a middle, middle aged man, and even, even now that I think of it, a middle aged Caucasian man. Hell yeah. I would have been diagnosed way earlier. Yeah. Even if they wouldn't be able to afford me the research, they would have transferred me and made sure that I get to a place or someone that could have afforded me the information. Hmm. There would have been a transfer or a needs of whatever and donations just to get me to a country that would have been able to help me get my diagnosis. They would have been, you know. Yeah. Would you say that like these issues of in the healthcare system, as you know it, these issues of ageism, gender bias, would you say that they are themselves like their own public health crisis? If you put them in that perspective, I feel like they, yes, they, they, as much as it's not every time and all the time, but they do have some sort of influences and we shouldn't be oblivious or ignorant towards the fact that they do impact to some extent, some people would say that they've never really experienced it, which is okay because that's their experience, but it doesn't take away that someone must have experienced any or all of them at one given point in time. So yeah. they shouldn't be overlooked. They they are there. That every human being is worthy. Yes, because I have this particular young girl. She has, uh, what is it called? Um, But it's a heart and lung condition. I just forgot the name. Okay. I don't know offhand. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, pulmonary hypertension. Yes. Gotcha. She has pulmonary hypertension. And she was said to have, um, what is it called? Uh, asthma this whole time. And she started, like me, she started reading. And she's like, no, whatever I'm feeling, it's also affecting my heart. So it can't just be asthma. It's some, it's, it may be asthma, but it must have other things. And then just like me, they thought she was a hypochondriac and it's all in her head and she just like attention. She was even asked if she was pregnant and she got so frustrated. Yeah. She's like, not just talking to me. She's like, I don't even like boys. How am I? How am I? 
I like girls. How am I pregnant? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's out of frustration. And the only time they took her seriously is that her dad was dropping her school at school while she was about to write an exam. And what he noticed that she turned blue. Her entire body was blue. Wow. He quickly rushed her to a hospital. The hospital was like, we've never seen this before. We are not capable of taking care of her. Can we transfer her to South Africa? So she was transferred. She got there. She got helped. And the doctor, after helping her, they had to open her up. They didn't even have a time to schedule her in. They had to open up right there. Wow. They cut underneath her boob. They did all they had to do. And after that, they told them that if this kid arrived here less any time after, but it was a stupid number, like 20 minutes or something, she would have been gone. Wow. Yeah. And now you're living with parents you've been telling every day that something was wrong with you. She even knew what was wrong with her. She even said to her, to her mother, I remember, she's like, take me to a cardiologist. If they mm-hmm. say I am a hypochondriac, I will go to a mental institution and I will not argue with you ever again. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's, well, let's, let's, you know, you're talking to us about the association. Can you talk to us about how it was born? How your experience oh. led into the foundation of the Rare Disease Lesotho Found Association and, and um, you know, what the meaning of this work is for you as you've stepped up as an advocate for other people, you know, yeah. and, and your advocacy has expanded in that way. How did this all happen? Well, they, well, it happened in a way that, you know, I struggled with my own diagnosis for the longest time, uh, gained stable, and I experienced a lot of harsh things. Harsh as in I've been kicked out of hospitals. <laughs> I've been t- told, I remember this one time where I was kicked out of a hospital with a temperature over 39 degrees to 40. And this is Celsius for those who are listening. But that, I mean, they kicked you out with that temperature? The doctor didn't want to admit that he didn't know what was wrong with me and felt like it was a personal attack towards me for whatever reason. And well, names won't be mentioned, but that happened. And these are the kind of experiences I've had to deal with. And they were not really easy, especially because that happened in a foreign country. I I had no dog, no cat, no uncle, no anybody. So I literally had to fight for myself. Um, And so when time came, I was like, you know what? I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person with this kind of problem. And then I looked at my country and I'm like, I've been fortunate enough not to live specifically in Lesotho, which is very small, not so much. And I'm like, the, the healthcare system for normal things is already bad for your everyday regular issues. And I'm like, how many other entablings are there in the social? How many? So I decided I made a, a, a decision in 2017 to move to the social, which is crazy because, because of anybody with Alice Dana syndrome will tell you, <laughs> moving to a very cold country is very stupid. Especially if you have a choice. Right. And for me, Botswana, where my parents live, is warmer. It's more of a desert than it is a cold right. climatic place. So I decided to go to a cold place. And my parents looked at me. I remember my mom looked at me like I'm crazy. She's like, you, you, you sure? So you did this specifically because you wanted to be able to help people yes. who were getting the least help. Yes. So I was like, no, let me go home and check how the scenario is. I don't think I'm the only one. 
I, 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 there's something like, nah, I don't necessarily think I'm the only one. And I'm pretty sure there's more. But what I was clear about is that Lesotho has 2 million people, meaning Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome patients would be less than 10. Mm. If Let's say, specifically speaking, there'll be less than 10. And I was like, no, having an advocacy for 10 people is not going to solve my problem. Because I believe that even though rare conditions are different, they've got way too many similarities. So I was like, no, I'm not going to look into looking for EDS patients at all. That's not my thing. My thing is I'm going to look for anybody with any sort of rare clinical issue and give them the support they need. And just even if it starts off as just the chat room where we can talk about these things and lift ourselves up. Uh, so I found a few people as I was talking about it. And then before I knew it, you won't believe it. It was registered in a week. That's incredible. I know. <laughs> and I don't think, I, I don't ask me how I did it because I, 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 determination. Yeah, I suppose, or something external was helping and assisting in this whole thing. It was just meant to be. I don't know yeah. because I can't really say I could go and put someone up and say, I did ABC and I'm, I would guarantee you to. Because the lady that was helping me get it had been trying to register her own NGO for over five years and had not been successful. Wow. Yet I went in and I was done. Within a week, it was registered. And then a, a month later, we had an opening and a launch day. Amazing. And we got patients really fast. By After the launch day, we had about 50 patients already. And we started expanding. Because wow. the 50 were the people who've been looking for someone like us to help them anyway. So the rest are just people coming in and saying, we've heard this exists. And then the, the conditions go up, the people go up. But because it's such a small country, I have a lot of one patient has one condition, one, 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 one situations sure. over a groups of 10, 12. Yes, there's, there's those conditions where I realize that they're more prone for the social, but they're still rare, but they're prone. They, they, you've got right. more numbers. Like hemophilia is quite more common in Lesotho. Yeah, yes, especially among the the males, not necessarily the females. The female one is very rare. It's a very rare type of hemophilia to find it in a female. Not to say it's not there, but it's very rare to find hemophilia in a female. Uh, so uh, we've got one of those, and the the bigger groups where they now have their own group, then they come under us as a bigger umbrella and then one by one they only have us because the only one then you what I do is if you are only one I will suggest you international groups to be in on social media so that you do even though you have never met them you still have some people who because that's what helped me understand what was wrong with me is having people like me anywhere else in the world talk about situations they end and I'm realizing oh my god that's exactly how it I, I go through it and it's it's as much as it's not medicine, it is quite helpful. I think it's better than medicine even, knowing that you're not alone and that you're not yeah. crazy, it can help you intensively. Community so is huge. Yeah. It's it's very huge. So the 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 struggle basically that I had was the fuel that pumped the engine to create our DLA. Yeah. It's and the hunger, and it was almost like I don't want anyone else to go through the hardships I had to go through being fought. There was things, I went through a lot of things that sometimes that even included being 
sent off by immigration because I was sick and came back. There's a lot of things that I experienced, which I, I feel like is not fair because it was solely based on the fact that my body was defective. Right. I've lost jobs, not because I'm not capable of working, but because the owner of the business would say then after they see one of my flow ups, usually after a flow up, we think you are a liability and sorry, but. Are there no disability laws to protect against that kind of behavior from employers over there? We are only fighting it now. eh? Right. That's why we're here. We're trying to implement those kind of rules. Good for you. But they, 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 I won't, especially for, we're also trying to make sure people understand that visible disabilities are disabilities. Hmm. So And, and invisible, of, visible and invisible. <laughs> Whether you yeah, see it or not, yeah. if someone tells you there's something up, there's something up, period. And it's painful that we have to voice out. And it's painful that it, it had to take me out of my comfort zone. People are like, no, but you're confident. I'm like, but I don't like the fact that it was forced out of me. The confidence was forced out of me due to situations I had no control over. And it's a little unfair because you're saying to me that little shy little girl had to step out of her shyness because she had to. Because, yeah, it's basically a survival mode. It is not natural. It doesn't develop on its own. It is what happened that made you get to that. And it's really painful. So I was like, no, you know what? I, I, if I can't be anything, can I be a voice to someone else like me? Can I at least fight that battle because I've already went through the most having extra won't really hurt me and because I, I also I think I'm becoming the one thing I wished I had I wished I had someone that fought for me yeah no, but not taking back that my parents did what they could how they could but they was as as clueless as I was they were just thinking can my kid not pass can they wake up tomorrow? So they didn't really have the strength to, you know. To really get in there fight. and fight. Yeah, and get, and get in there and fight. So I, I, I was like, you know what? Um, if there's anything I can do, can I make someone else life a little better? I think that's gorgeous. What I can give them is a diagnosis. Yeah. I can't solve anything else but to tell them, you know what? You're not crazy. You've got this condition. And then you're not the only one. You can go and talk to someone in Australia. Yes, she's the only one I know, but at least it's someone you're not alone. I think that is just incredible. I mean, that's all. Do you do you know how much value you bring to the people that you help? I I I I I do, but sometimes I don't. I try not to go into it and and try not so that it doesn't absorb me. Sure. Yeah. Cause you still need to live your life and not carry all that or hold all that space. You have to hold space for you too. Yes. Not only that, I don't want it to, to, to get to my head because sometimes people do humanitarian things, but have a very egotistic mannerism. And I mean, like you're not doing it for yourself. Why does it have to be about you? I've been asked countless times how, I don't like being the face of RDLA. I barely, people barely know who created it and the owner behind it. Where I've seen most advocates, groups, the, the person who did it would be really in the upfront. I don't, and my reason is this. 
it was never about me. As far as I'm concerned, I'm okay. I don't need RDLA. It was never for me. It's for the people. So I feel like I'm, it, it's pointless for me being in the front line now. I'm famous in the name of I wanted to help people. For me, not that people who do it that way, they're wrong, but for me, I feel like we need to make the people be people story, the other people's stories out, not mine. Mine, I'm at a point of I understand my body, not fully, but I, I feel like I'm in a place where I could have an everyday life experience to the fullest. And it's not about me. It's about that little kid who got who who got pregnant at 21 and now has this child or even younger and has this child who is not normal and doesn't know what to do and doesn't even have a family to help her because as soon as she got pregnant, she was kicked out of the house. And the boyfriend that got her pregnant realized as soon as the kid was disabled, so to speak, he ran. Now, I want to be that question that little girl can call and say, I don't know what to do. This kid is not sleeping. This kid is not eating. I don't even know what's wrong with her. And you're like, it's going to get better. I know it's not today, but it's going to get better. We're going to get you to school as well. We're going to try and find someone that takes care of the kid when you're at school. And you're going to sit back and you're going to have a better life for yourself and your child. Those are the things that drive me. Not It's, it's not a personality contest or trying to get, no, it's not about me. It's about everybody else in the rare community that needs some sort of help and support. So I that, can that's tell. What, I mean, we, I can hear in your voice how meaningful this is to you. Yeah, I know it's it's very if if that's the only thing I could do and I be and I was told tomorrow you're not gonna be here, I would be happy. I would be sound. Yeah. And how beautiful is that that what could be seen as terrible luck to be born with this genetic condition <laughs> is what led you down the rabbit hole, as it were, you know, to this path to help other people. And that this is what now fulfills you. I mean, that's kind of a beautiful embracing of one's fate. True, true, true. And it does fulfill me. I. It is frustrating, though. For example, there mm. is no funding yet. We don't have any formal funding. Everything that we started off was from my own pocket. And... Mm people who would be affected by the condition and was put in because the, maybe that company, uh, they work for a good company. So the company would give in, you know, a little bit there and there. But besides those personal donations and specific companies who could only give maybe airtime on the radio or could give us a, or put us in a competition and maybe we win something. Those are the only kind of things we've been living on. And as we grow bigger, obviously funding, more funds are needed because we are getting people who need to go to a certain place to get a procedure done. And we're trying to help people to go there and there's fun and there's no funding. Sometimes though, it's painful that the only thing I can advise, I can give is advice, but nothing more that's, to it. But that's something. I mean, advice is something it that is, it is something. might usually cost I, time and money too. Yes, and I'm not discouraged. I, I'm hoping one day, RDLA would be able to run itself. Well, let's give you an opportunity to plug it right now. If someone is listening to this episode and says, I must now donate to RDLA, where can they find you in order to do that? Uh, They can find us on my email, which is readyzizlesutra at gmail.com. And we'll link this on the webpage for the episode too. Okay, thank you. And 
our social media platforms, our Instagram uh, or our Facebook page works. Uh, we have got Twitter, but we're not so active in Twitter. But those two, Facebook and Instagram, is still already social already this little association you will find us there and if you need to contact us we can go through that uh, i prefer emails but mm. we do get back to people mostly within a day That's and it will be beautiful wonderful. and it's, as much as yes we're saying funding but anything else that can help let's say someone is listening to you and they have certain summits throughout the year they could invite us so we know better because remember, I'm just a patient who wants to help. I'm not very knowledgeable with certain things and how certain economics work or how to you know, fundraise or all those things. So if there's any sort of um, conferences that are happening, that could be a contribution. And you say, you know what? Well, right now it's even better because COVID has blocked us in and everything is on through Zoom. But even yeah. if it's, it's over and there's like a, the, sometimes we wish to go to places and get, advanced but we can't move because maybe we don't have the money for the ticket and whatnot but if someone can say we can get you here and train you for however long that is also a form of donation to us uh, or that we've got excess medication for this particular condition we can send it to you if you've got patients of this particular condition those also work as very good uh, donations in a way because trust me Anyone with a rare condition, if any of that medication could be given for half the price or free, that's 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 Christmas every day. Yeah. And that's all they ever ask for. For example, we've got a shortage of factor eight for hemophilic people in in, in in the Sutra specifically. So if someone were to say, I can supply factor eight of this content every month, that's Christmas. We would probably wash their feet. <laughs> that is that, that 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 that's how much it would mean yeah. to us. And so, if there's those kind of not everything is money or monetarily. Sometimes it's connections. It's sometimes it's connections, or just that wise say that could change everything upside down, or teaching that didn't, you didn't even know you needed, and then you're like, wow, this has impacted the the organization even better. And also being known, I'm I'm glad that we are the first African. Um, people on, on 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 your podcast yeah. it also means uh, you know an upper hand to our fellow africans and we can be like you know what there's more because we've grown actually when we started the red disease african alliance there were very few of us it was started by south africa so it was south africa kenya uh, ghana lesotho zimbabwe and what else? Yeah, Tanzania. And now I've realized last when the red, on Sunday, Red Disease Day, that we are way more now. There's more African countries which are grown into. We have not met all of them. We don't know each other. I realized there's few I didn't know existed at all. Like Nigeria wasn't there when we were establishing the Ray Alliance. Cameroon wow. um, wasn't there. And these are uh, these are big powers in Africa too. These are exactly you know heavy and hitters. So, so we I, I I intend to try and connect to all of them now that I know they do exist. And mm-hmm. because we what the reason I did rare disease instead of Alice Downer syndrome because of numbers. Yeah, and you I can also reach be, more people. We can reach more people as an alliance of different African countries. We can do more, 
and we can learn from each other as well because what we lack and someone else might have. Like Nigeria has manpower, has more people within. That population is a bit more than us. So I'm pretty sure that numbers may be higher and research could happen faster in a country like Nigeria because there are numbers in comparison to Lesotho where you're like, I want research done for one person. They look at you like, one person. Mm. Yes, we have AIDS patients who are dying every day. Sorry, we're going to put it back into AIDS. We can't go. I know we hear you that you, this is serious, but for one person, it doesn't make any sense. Well, economical sense, so to speak. We can, but we can show you the numbers. Yeah, yeah, but when it's collective, we can show you numbers. So yeah, yeah. it's exciting, really. That I think cool. that's so incredible. It's so hopeful and so incredible. It is. Yeah, and and I mean, it's interesting because it's like that we can go into the depths of sadness hearing the stories of people who are struggling, you know, and, and mm. I know from talking to you that, that that's very meaningful to you and it, it hits you in the heart, but mm. then to be able to also see the other side of that, to see the hopeful side, which is very much about, it's very much like a disease and diagnosis journey, isn't it? It's like, there are the early stages of grief, the sadness, the frustration, sometimes mm-hmm. the denial, but there oh, is something on the other side of that. And you're helping other people get to the other side of it because you've gone there. Yes. It's a, it's a very personal invested thing, but I had to learn to detach so that I also come first. Cause I realized in the beginning I would given so much and be attached to everything and everybody that walks in through the office and take this, that story to home. And I realized that's not healthy. Yeah, they should Those be boundaries. A a, the boundaries are healthy. Boundaries, yes, they, yeah. they're not there. But I, since then, learned to the office hours are office hours. When you get home, it's about you. Weekends are about you, unless it's an emergency, because there are those emergencies where they're really out of your. And I think it happens in any place, whether it's a corporate world or whatever. There'll be exceptions to the rule, but for everyday life, I've decided to know where to put my boundaries and also remember that as much as I'm an advocate, I'm also a patient. Yeah. That's why people would tell you patient related uh, causes are dangerous. Well, well, there's pros and cons, but it can be very dangerous if the one leading them is actually a patient. I know at first. It would be better. if <laughs> Yes. It's always better to not, you know, to have someone else with that person who's sick there and is the one above. But unfortunately, in this case, it's not the case. Mm. We haven't gotten to a point where volunteers without any relation to the cause have come out and said, we want to fight for this cause. Maybe that's numbers. Maybe it's going to take more number recognition. And this year's impact has been incredible because ever since the in fact this whole February the amount of contacts I've been getting and I believe that that's going to change very soon I'm hearing a lot of people reaching out in a way that has never happened before I'm actually quite overwhelmed because you know you're getting you're waking up and you see all these emails and you're like yeah (laughs) but it's a good thing okay but it's, it's it is people who, who know you exist and want to be involved. And that's exciting. Yes, exactly. So that's a, it's a positive thing. It's something I've been, I've been asking for, 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 for years, ever since we started three years ago. So that, now that it's happening, I'm, I'm really grateful for it. And it's like, 
finally something we're being heard finally we are not in the shadows anymore we are upfront mm. and we should make noise even further in order to be heard in a way and not not rowdy noises but noises to assist being polite doing it in a manner in which that it makes it gets to the person that needs to hear it well not aggression because we also have to be patient i mean it's not anybody even though the medical system would say sometimes fails us we also have to be aware that they can't know much unless they've seen those cases as well so we should also have a sympathetic thought when it comes to medical practitioners when they say but i've only read about this i've never seen it before excuse me for not having to think of it first hand when you walked into the office um you have to also empathize and be like no well this makes sense this individual really doesn't know any better and have a bit of a a kind heart when it comes to it's like when something is rare like really how what you know it's, it's unfortunate but it's, how would they know they're also human they're doing the best they they can with what they have and so it's not neither nobody's right nobody's wrong can we just war, work towards a better system altogether for those who are in this boat with us either it being the doctors themselves can we educate them can we do the our job also by making them aware and educating them in the way they need to to understand that these conditions should be treated differently they are different they are impacted and it's not just the medical or the physical issues there's also social issues that work with rare conditions that people don't really talk about it's all is mostly just simply the physical and the medical issues but like when you're rare and you come from a rural area in a country like Lesotho and your first, your the closest clinic is a 2 2 hour walk yeah and there's no transport and you are literally waiting for months and to get some sort of donation just for you to eat and your child and your kid is told they need a special diet what is a special diet the kid yeah. will eat what's in the house and what's in the house is barely enough so those are the things that now we have to go deep that's why i think things in africa would differ a little bit from western countries where now it's mm-hmm. like we don't even have welfare in the way people in the us have and whatever and we are talking about some people who don't even really have proper nutrition even without having a condition they like i said these people have to walk two two hours plus just to go to the nearest clinic and these clinics are not necessarily equipped with everything needed by the way right they have the minimal stuff they have maybe a thermometer an injection an iv line but they would have to be transferred if it, the, the condition is really bad and being transferred sometimes there's no cars or the area is so unreachable because there's not proper roads it's just gravel all the way in and some people not die because they're sick they die because they couldn't get to the right place at the time at the right time and we have a lot of those cases in africa where it's not that it shouldn't have been that serious but it took too long for the person to reach the right place in order to get help so we deal with a lot of social issues as well on top of the medical issues and mm. on top of you having this diagnosis that no one else knows and i've got a lot of kids that get tied up in on beds because people say they are bewitched oh uh, yeah okay that's really that's rough because that what you're talking about is you're you're dealing with 
a cultural issue there that is that's yes, a hard one that to surmount. Really, yeah. And it's sad. It's really sad that you'd have, and I tell people that most, I don't know why, but most rare children, especially children, are extremely intellectually gifted. Now you've got a kid that doesn't go to school. You lock them up in a room. Nobody knows they exist. And you are literally disservicing the world by not having these kids be their full potential with their condition. Because they may not be able to walk, but they may have a brain of a genius. And you are yeah. you're not affording them or the world the ability for them to kind of come out there and experience the world in the way they can. And maybe afford, you know, you could do, nowadays there's things. The kid could be online and people could know their brain. Because I've never met a rare kid who's not intelligent in one way or another. Well, they have to grow up a lot faster than your average kid. That's one part of it, isn't it? Exactly. So they, I don't know why. And they're so, all of these kids will be smiling in hospital under seven machines. And you're like, huh? Yeah. They you have still a smile on. And we are always complaining about the minimal problems in the world. And this kid is literally under seven machines. As they wake up, all they see is hospital machines. But as you say, hello, their smile is infectious. It is better than stars. And they will be supporting you and tell you, you know, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. And you're looking at this kid like, you're consoling me. And you're Mm -hmm. the one on the bed. But you were that kid once. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) I suspect. But it's not about me. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, you know, I want to sort of slide into the last portion of this interview. And I would love for you to share, you have such a wealth of experience to offer, not only to the people that you're working with within rare disease Lesotho, but also um, the people who are tuning into this episode who are, I, I, I'm sure alongside me, incredibly impressed by the work that you are doing and the journey that you've been through. And I would love to know if you have some tips that you could share with people who are tuning in, what your top three tips might be for someone who is living this rare disease journey, who's living with potentially invisible, certainly chronic Mm -hmm. and disabling illness. What would your top three tips be for, for thriving, for living well, as you have figured out how to do? Well, so first of all, I would say it differs. I know it's, it's, a, it's a journey. Once you've got the diagnosis, I believe that's when your life starts. Start going deeper and understanding the condition, but away from yourself. Differentiate. It's not a you thing. It's that condition versus you. So you need to make sure that you separate the two. In the sense that you understand, okay, fine, let's say I'm going to use hemophilia because we've been using it most of the, the whole time. So hemophilic means I'm sensitive to my muscles and my joints being painful. And if I get a cut, I might bleed to death. So you know, and you understand that. And you know, to in order, if I do get a, a cut, I rush to the hospital for effector aid or I buy one for myself and inject myself. No, you know how to take care of yourself. My eating habits should be different. I should try and stay away from alcohol because then it thins my blood, yaddy, yaddy, yaddy. So you get to know that and leave that aside. Once you've gotten that and you take care of yourself in that manner, now live get to those hobbies that you can still do. Yes, you can't kick a ball or be in the football team or, you know, whatever physical thing. Then say, okay, but I'm smart. Let me play chess. Do If it's chess that you like, get into that chess. Be the best chess player anybody has ever seen. Mm. 
take whatever it is that you have. If you're a makeup artist and you can look like, I don't know, a supermodel just sitting on your chair and being unable to move in your wheelchair, do that, take it up. Let that be something that fuels you. Let it be something that you wake up in the morning side of focus. The rest of the life of your life is not that exciting. I mean, it's injections, mm-hmm. hospitals, yeah. and nurses and doctors all the time. If you can get a spare time where you can do something that fulfills you. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying ignore the fact that you are special or ignore the fact that you do have this area. Combine them too and let them inspire you. But in a healthy way. And remember to rest. If there's one advice that I wish someone told me, it's okay not to be okay. And when you're not okay, take time out. Even if it means you take a whole week in bed, turning and tossing because you have fatigue, do it. If people around you don't understand it, it's on them. It's not a you thing. They'll get over it. Eventually, they'll start understanding who you are. And you will attract people who actually do understand you. And in as much as you will lose a lot of people, like we spoke earlier, the ones that stick around are usually the people you're supposed to be with anyway. Yeah. So that's the advice I'd give people. I'd say don't concentrate a lot on the diagnosis, but be aware of it and understand it. But pay more attention to who you are as a person. Because yes, like I know with Ellis Dallas, a lot of people, 80% of us wanted to be dancers because our body allowed us to be dancers as a child. Mm. And now we're told we can't dance. Fine, you can't dance. You love dance. Teach dance. Yeah. Be around dancers. Direct, be around direct dancers. dance. Yeah. Direct dance. Do something about it that can, as much as, because before you were told you can't dance, I'm pretty sure you've done something to effect where, I mean, there's that beautiful lady who, who went on AGT where she lost her hearing because of, Ellis Danlos syndrome. And she said for the longest time, have you I think I she, yeah, she I'll have to look it up. Yeah, please look it up. She she lost her hearing and she was a singer before the hearing was lost. And she says, I think about two and a half years to three years, she didn't do anything, she was just depressed. Then she went back to music and now she plays music and sings without wow. hearing. She she performs barefooted, so she hears vibrations. Oh, that's incredible. Well, I mean, it's what they said about Beethoven when he was losing his sight. He was still composing and playing music, wasn't he? Yes. So she she's one of my inspiration, especially being so closely connected to me, because I almost lost my hearing. But I was very lucky that I found an ENT specialist that picked up the issue very fast. Mm. and got me onto the right medication very quickly. It took a while, but I now hear better than I used to hear. Wow. And I, as much as yes, there's still times where I can feel it, you know, coming back and forth, is stable. And I know more than five people that have EDS who've lost their hearing or are using hearing aids in order to hear. And I don't have any aid. I, I find it really, the only aid I have is really my glasses. And then sometimes I do keep, I, I keep a crutch and some guards yeah. for when things get bad. Exactly. But just in case. Just in case. So yeah. I'm not oblivious. I do have this thing. It's there. And I will tell you when I, if I'm not okay and I'm in an area that offers, you know, those free wheelchairs, if I'm really, yep. really bad, I will use it. I've done it before too. Not, 
Yes. So it's not an everyday thing. So I'm not saying I don't have the condition and just wanting to live my life, live a local. No, I'm aware of it. I know precautions. And I say it when I get to places that people don't know or wouldn't tell. So the new, the new place, I make it very clear in a, in a nice way. By the way, I'm very fragile. I've got this mm-hmm. condition. I eat this way. Please don't feel offended when I can't eat the food you've cooked because I'm allergic to most of the food products mm-hmm. that I've done. Like I don't eat onions, um, gluten, dairy, and all of those things. So please don't feel offended. It's because I physically can't. And I don't want you to feel bad if I start getting sick in your house. So I'm letting you know firsthand. So if you can be like that and be open about, and also hiding doesn't help. Mm. I used to hide away my condition to make people comfortable. And it's a them thing. It's not a you thing. It has nothing to do with you. If they can't yeah. stomach it and they can't con- can understand it, it's not a you thing. You did, you did your part. You, you were vocal about it. You, you made it aware. And it's not, and some people will tell you, you know, it's because you want attention. You want people to feel sorry for you. I'm like, no, I'm vocalizing it so that in case anything happens, you are aware. And plus, if it does happen that I'm not able to help myself, you can be an assistance to either call an ambulance or be able to put me upright in a good way that I may stay conscious until help comes. It's not a you thing or me thing. I'm, I'm doing it for the both of us. Yeah. So it's not a change. Some people think you 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 vocalize. And my mom, in the beginning, she didn't like it when I vocalized it a lot. And I said, and but now she understands. In fact, she's the one that says it before I say it. She's <laughs> like, ah, this one, of, this one is a wine glass, the very expensive type. You <laughs> treat her like a very expensive wine glass. She's fragile. You don't. Love she's, that. She's, 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 the, she's the oldest, but treat her like a baby with her body. Not her mind. Her mind is very. She's, but she's also valuable. And, uh, you know, like all, uh, and cultured. I mean, this idea yes. of an expensive wine glass is kind of the perfect metaphor. Yes. Yes. I love very that. So, so she, remind, so this is a great thing for people who are tuning in. Just tell everyone I'm a very expensive wine glass. Yes. I'm a very expensive wine glass. You know how you treat it. You don't give, you don't take it out all the time. Right. You bring it out on a special occasion. We are but the special crystal. Though, you know, the personal, yeah, personal special crystal. So treat me as such uh, because anything can pop out anytime. But <laughs> as an adult now, looking back, if I were to have had an adult like me to advise me, I wish someone told me, you are not your condition. Yeah. But you figured That's- it out. Yeah. Uh, I think if someone had told me that, it would have made it a lot of things better because because of this condition I've had. I, I don't know about other people, but things like, especially if you get diagnosed early and you haven't had babies or whatever, <laughs> your perspective of life changes. You, for example, all of my cousins that are in the same age range are married and one has a child and there's those expectations. And you look at life and you're like, how am I going to tell my grandmother she should stop asking me questions like that? <laughs> when are you getting married? Like, yeah. grandma, that's the least of my problems right now. No offense, but I believe if love comes, um, but it's not anything that I'm, because I've got other things to worry about. And then there's those things that if I do get married, what if this person asks for kids? 
I know I can't really give them that. That would be risky to my body. And even if I were to be able to conceive healthily and have a healthy child, I'm not going to give them a motherly love. I'm not going to be able to cuddle a baby when it's crying. I can't do that. My joints are going to pop out all the time trying to carry a child. Yeah, I'm going to be sick more than they will be, but they're the ones that are infants. Am I going to be able to live with myself in that case? I don't know. I'm not ready to, to get into it yet. I'm sure life, if life does bring it, I will receive it with open arms. But those are the kind of things that are not the same. Your perspective starts changing. You start seeing things a bit different. And I don't think the society as a whole understands that aspect. And the topics come up and it's almost like you are selfish or you are not normal for not having those ambitions and the normal things that people expect from you. You know, it's college, you get a job, you get married, you have kids and you're looking at the people like, can I just stay alive, please? Yeah. Well, I'm so glad that you have stayed alive. (laughs) I'm so glad that you are working to help others do the same. I'm so honored to have spent this time with you today, to have met you. Me too. This is beautiful. Beautiful. Well, you're you're beautiful. You brought that Thank energy. You. And I, I'm truly, truly so grateful that you were able to make the time today. Um, I, I cannot thank you more. You know, this has just been such a beautiful conversation and I'm so so, so honored um, to have spent the time with you today in Tableng. I, I am, I hope that everyone who's tuning in is looking up Rare Disease Lesotho immediately. Um, make your donations. <laughs> um, and I really look forward to having you back on the show as the organization continues to grow and your alliances around Africa continue to grow. We're going to have you back. So um, I, I thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. This is a a beautiful thing. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.